Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is a veteran of the gold market, James Turk, a name that might be familiar to most of you who are familiar with the gold market. James has founded goldmoney.com as a convenient and economical way to buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium online using digital gold currency. And he got four patents for that. He's also written about the economics of money and the economics of gold. Most recently, he wrote Money and Liberty in the Pursuit of Happiness and the Theory of Natural Money. James has an extensive understanding of the history of gold as money. And I think it, uh, we, we're going to have a very interesting conversation about 
gold, money, what money is, and how Bitcoin fits into that picture, and where we can expect these things to develop, and how we can expect them to develop over the coming years. James, thank you so much for joining us. Save, it's a real pleasure to be with you today. Likewise, likewise. I've been uh, familiar with your work for a very, very long time. For our listeners who aren't very familiar, perhaps we could just begin with a kind of overview of your career and what got you into gold and hard money and sound money and these issues. Basically, things I learned from my parents. Uh, My grandparents um, left Austria after the Austrian hyperinflation. My father uh, was 12, 13 at the time. And they came to the United States and myself and my, and my sisters, we learned all about uh, money, currency, gold, silver, but, you know, just basic common sense type things, which I then decided to pursue as a career. So I chose a university in the States that was uh, specialized in international monetary economics, which is where I got my degree. And the interesting thing was, is I learned about Keynesian rubbish and had no real um, way it did it's not the way the world really works i'd sort of forgotten what i learned from my from my parents but basically when gold went from the 35 dollars an ounce back then up to 50 dollars, i realized that either gold was very overvalued or what i learned at the university was wrong and everything i learned as a child from my parents came back to me and um, basically went on my own studied internet i uh, studied austrian economics in detail uh, learned a lot from rothbard mises hayek uh, you know, all of the great names and took it forward. My entire career happens to be in a period when we've abandoned gold and gone to fiat. And I, I've learned a lot. I was also very fortunate to have a career in banking, investment management, commodity trading, a variety of dis- different disciplines. But the key to it was uh, starting with a big New York City bank back in the late 1960s. I learned banking from guys that had lived and worked through the Great Depression. And that they taught me a lot about what banking should be when it's managed in a very principled way uh, and from, in a way in which society benefits from the usefulness that banks have to offer. Nice. And you set up Gold Money in 2001. How did that come about and what was your experience with that? So we could think of that as being a sort of a, um, a gold-based Bitcoin. Essentially, the idea was just like Bitcoiners use their Bitcoin wallets today, to make payments with Bitcoin, you did this, but with gold, right? And other precious metals. Yeah, exactly. The idea actually goes back to 1979 when I was living and working in Southeast Asia and educating myself as to how the world really works. In 1974, there was a West German bank called Herstadt Bank that collapsed and it brought international banks to their knees. And I thought, you know, how is this possible? A medium-sized West German bank topples the international banking system I basically set it out as a goal to study everything I could about money and currency um, and see if I could come up with the answer to uh, solve the problem that caused Herstadt to collapse. And by 1979, I had the idea uh, of gold money, but back then, I never thought it was going to happen in my lifetime, to be, uh, to be honest, because the technology just wasn't moving uh, to the, or wasn't available, and I didn't think it would ever move to the extent that it, that it has. But by the late 1980s, I realized that the technology was indeed moving more quickly than previously thought possible. And in 1992, in order to carve out some intellectual property, I hired a patent attorney and described to him, you know, what I envisioned in terms of digital gold currency. 
We filed a patent application in January of 1993, and that was well before the internet. I even knew about it, that it existed. It was just simply in my mind that currency was going to evolve in such a way that would take it to a new level from what it had been previously. And I think it might be helpful here if we can get into a couple of definitions because they use money and currency differently from one another. And if I can explain how I see it and how I understand it, it could be uh, useful as a basis for you know, some of the discussions we'll have about Bitcoin and banking and things of that nature. But in my view, money is the same today as it was 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 years ago. Uh, it has four functions. It doesn't have just three. You know, we use the three functions um, and school books talk about Aristotle being the first to explain the three functions of money as a unit of account, means of payment, and a, and a store of value. But there's actually a, f- a fourth function, and that's to conclude a payment or to make a payment, to transfer purchasing power from the payee to the payee without risk. Uh, and that's an important distinction that's been ignored ever since over a hundred years, uh, since we've abandoned gold. Because when you use a tangible asset in commerce, you're actually extinguishing, extinguishing the payment at the moment that the good and service exchanges with gold or silver. Silver too, for that matter, as a gold substitute. So for example, if I go into a store and I put a gold coin on the counter to buy a quantity of something or another, I, the, the storekeeper gets the gold, I get the uh, the good that I'm purchasing, and there's no lingering obligation. The exchange is immediate. The shopkeeper receives his purchasing power in the gold. I receive the goods and services. Any other type of currency, any other money substitute that's used, it's a lingering obligation that has to go through the settlement process. Uh, banks have to bring their balance sheets back into balance. And that's a key element here because what we're talking about when we speak of currency, uh, we're talking about bank liabilities. The word currency only came into existence in the 17th century. Back prior to that, there was only gold and silver coin, and it was circulating as money in the environment. But after the development of banking in London in the late 1600s, and particularly with the institutional institutionalization of currency through the Bank of England, that currency became a, a term that was used because people back then, when they deposited their coins in the bank, they got something in return, you know, a piece of paper. They knew that piece of paper wasn't money. So they came up with the term currency, which is basic Latin um, for the currency, um, current in a river, uh, you know, something that's moving from place to place. Um, so I always distinguish between money on the one hand and currency on the other. And it's relevant to our Bitcoin discussion because Bitcoin isn't crypto money, it's cryptocurrency. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective here. So why would you say then that Bitcoin is not money, but currency? Because, or before, let me motivate that question from where I see it. So from my perspective, I, I agree with you in the distinction that you make between currency and money in that the currency was usually a term that was referred, that was used to refer to something that was redeemable for money. It was right. not the money itself, but it was something redeemable for money that was made in a way to standardize and facilitate the movement of uh, money. So in the context in which money is no longer backed by gold, such as the situation is right now with the dollars, so for the past 50 years, where there isn't even any kind of um, even nominal link between the currency and gold, the distinction is really moot at that point because what people refer to as currency 
is money itself. It's not money because it's backed by gold. It's money because it's just being used as money. So in that sense, I don't see this distinction to be extremely relevant right now. And on the other hand, I think the issue, I, on the other hand, I agree with you on the issue of settlement being very uh, pivotal towards understanding this. But I think the issue is that the world economy today is a lot more interconnected and globalized. And so people are performing economic settlement across very large distances, which makes final settlement with gold take a lot longer and cost a lot more than you can do it with Bitcoin. So it's true that if I wanted to buy something with you from you, I could just hand you gold coins and then you take the gold coin and then that's it. That's money that you can keep in your family for a thousand years and it's likely going to stay as money. But that's not the case. That's not the case if I wanted to pay you across borders. If I wanted to pay you across borders, I need to get that money moving one way or the other or pay somebody here who's going to pay somebody over there to pay you something equivalent to it. So that takes time and costs money. Yeah. So therefore, when it comes to actual final settlement in an economy like today's globalized economy, it seems to me like Bitcoin does a better job than gold. What do you think? Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, and I read it in in your books, uh, both Principles of Economics and Bitcoin Standard, and also a little bit in the Fiat Standard. By the way, that that was a very in, uh, enlightening book, the Fiat Standard. But I would change the title because it it does disservice to the word standard. Um, it you know Fiat is not a standard. It's not anything we want to uphold or look toward. Uh, it's a, an abomination. Um, but that's an aside. We can get into it because it's some of the ideas that I'm developing in, in uh, the, the next edition of uh, Money and Liberty. But going back to this distinction between money and currency, money stays the same, but currency evolves over time. Technology changes things, and it's done that with currency. You know, initially you had very rudimentary coins. Then the coins became much more better refined as refining processes uh, were more capable in terms of determining the fineness of a coin. Someone invented the milling of the edges of the coins to prevent clipping, etc. And then in 1694, the Bank of England says, well, let's use this piece of paper instead of coin. Let's keep the coin safe in the vault and use this piece of paper instead. Now, what that did is it fundamentally changed what we were using in commerce from actually a tangible asset to a liability of a bank. And the fact that it's a liability of a bank, there's a lot of counterparty risk and other risks associated with it. But it, it is a, it was at that time a technological advancement, particularly as international and global commerce was growing and developing under the nation's uh, British Empire that was developing at the time. And that model was then brought to the entire world by the extent of the British Empire and also by... Britain winning two world wars and ensured that its model was going to be the model that, that the world would use. But let's carry this concept a little bit further about how currency developed. Once you had liabilities of banks circulating as, as a money substitute, there were new developments. In 1844, instead of going into a bank and walking out with uh, banknotes, you walked out of the bank with a checkbook and you could use the checkbook in order to make payments of a variety of different amounts um, regardless of the amount of currency that you actually had or the amount of banknotes that you actually were holding. Then along came wire transfers. Then after that became, uh, came uh, plastic cards as a means of circulating these bank liabilities for use in commerce. Now, 
I'm, I'm a Bitcoin advocate. Uh, don't get me wrong. Um, and I can get into that in a little bit because I, I, I've been involved with it, um, essentially since the very beginning or even before it began, as I can explain. But what you, what we have to describe is that just like you had a tangible asset circulating prior to the Bank of England, then you had bank liabilities circulating in commerce as a money substitute. I see Bitcoin as a money substitute. It's a new development and technological advancement in currency. It's a virtual currency, which we've never seen before in this world. And because it's a virtual currency, I had difficulty in, in grasping it at first, to be quite honest. Back in the early days of gold money, um, we ran a listserv and we invited people from all over the world uh, to answer and Questions, we, I would respond to different things. We would have conversations about a variety of different things. It's partly to, you know, get to understand what people were thinking, what their needs were to help grow and develop gold money. And one of the concepts that we were talking about at the time was, wouldn't it be great if we could come up with some kind of a currency that would serve like gold, but not be confiscated? Because throughout history, gold has been confiscated. In the 20th century, it was confiscated by Lenin, Mussolini, Hitler, and Franklin Roosevelt. And they did that because they wanted to get money out of the hands of the people. Once you get money out of the hands of the people, the government's in a very powerful position because with this ability to create purchasing power out of thin air through bank liabilities, they can then have a much more powerful position than if people actually had that money. And there was a constraint on government power uh, by limiting how much purchasing power they could create. So anyway, we had these discussions, and I don't know if Satoshi Nakamoto was one of the, you know, the many, many people that were in that group, but coming up with the idea or discussing the idea of having something that could not be confiscated for uh, use of purchasing power was a topic, and everything that he developed in his white paper in 2008 basically solved the discussions that we had, you know, a few years prior. It took me a while at first to understand exactly what was happening. I read the white paper. Uh, I was there when the first slice of pizza was bought for something like 7,000 Bitcoin or whatever it was back in 2009, I guess it was. 10,000. 10,000? Okay. Yeah. And uh, so I, I could have bought, you know, thousands and thousands of Bitcoin for, you know, what, uh, 15, 20 cents, whatever, or even a dollar. Uh, finally, when Bitcoin got up to $100 a coin, uh, I realized by that time that this was useful and it has a place. And therefore, I'm not surprised to see that Bitcoin has done as well as it has. And I've been a, a believer that eventually, and I've been saying this for quite some time, that eventually Bitcoin is going to go over 100,000 per coin. Uh, but I think now it's probably going to go even further simply because of the problems that are developing with fiat currency. But the point is, is that by looking at the the market cap of, of Bitcoin compared to the total quantity of M3 of the various fiat currencies around the world, it's just a very, very small fraction of uh, people are putting some of their purchasing power in, in Bitcoin. I, I like to use the expression of Max Kaiser that Bitcoin has no top because the dollar has no bottom. And the way it's going now is we can see the dollar has no bottom because they're just printing currency left and right. And when you're printing currency left and right like that, you're ultimately leading to a debasement of the currency. And that's an unfortunate circumstance, but that seems to be the way we're heading. So just to sort of summarize this discussion about Bitcoin and my views on it, 
I am a Bitcoin advocate, but the way I see it is that Bitcoin and gold are on the same side of the fight. We're fighting for liberty, we're fighting for private property, and we're fighting the fiat fascist monster that exists out there in various governments around the world. So Bitcoin and gold really are complementary to one another as well, because the strengths in gold that it's tangible are the weaknesses in Bitcoin that it's not tangible. But the strengths in Bitcoin that it isn't confiscatable based on current technology, uh, whereas gold can be confiscated. So the two really should be an important part of everyone's portfolio because they serve a complementary role in relation to each other. So Bitcoin is a, in my mind, a, a tool that is useful and that's why it has value. You know, anything that has a price to it has value because it's useful to someone. And I think Bitcoin is going to become increasingly useful as fiat currencies eventually collapse, which is what I've been expecting since for many, many years, but was, you know, first, I think, uh, described by me in my book that I co-wrote with John Rubino back in 2004, The Coming Collapse of the Dollar. Yeah. So uh, a couple of things I wanted to ask you about, I guess, I guess I'll stick to Bitcoin and then I'll come to the issue of the collapse a little bit later. But okay. going back to Bitcoin, you said that you think Bitcoin is not really money. It's a money substitute. Yes. Why would you say that that is the case? What makes it a money substitute? Uh, it's, it doesn't have counterparty risk like a bank uh, liability type currency, you know, banknotes or money on deposit in a bank account, but it does have a, reliability on other things beyond the immediate situation in which it's used as a means of exchange. So for example, um, you, you, it has, it depends on the internet and it depends on electricity, um, and, and those types of things. Uh, so it, it's, this is the unique element of virtual currency and what, what makes it difficult for people to get their hands around it and to understand it. But it comes down to basically, would you rather put your faith in math or politicians? Um, because politicians control fiat currency, math controls Bitcoin. And as long as the technology is not available to overcome the maths in Bitcoin, Bitcoin will continue to serve a useful role in preserving purchasing power, perhaps even enhancing purchasing power if more and more people end up using it. Whether it will serve as a Reliable currency is a whole nother discussion, and there's no easy answers to that. But if fiat currencies do collapse, which is what I expect, I'm sure that Bitcoin will be used more frequently in commerce as a payment mechanism than it is now. It's viewed now more like a speculative element rather than a international global currency. But I think that role will change as, as fiat currencies collapse. And if governments end up trying to confiscate, you know, gold again, which is, you know, just looking at history, it's a lesson we have to learn, and always something we have to keep in mind. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm still not sure that I agree that you could call it a money substitute because for me, what makes something a money substitute is that it is not money in itself. In other words, it's valued because of its relation to money in some way or the other. That it's a credit liability for money, or that it is a receipt for money. But uh, Bitcoin is not a substitute in any sense for anything. It's not backed by anything. It's not redeemable for anything. And therefore, for me, it is the money in itself. And I think that there's, uh, there's nothing about economics that necessitates that one particular thing needs to be money. All kinds of things can acquire money, and it's a functional term. 
It just means I, I, the way that I understand it from the Austrian perspective, this is what Rothbard and, and the Mises would say, is that a medium of exchange is a clear definition. We know what a medium of exchange is. A medium of exchange is something that people acquire in order to exchange it for something else. So anything can be used as a medium of exchange. Anything that you purchase in order to buy something else is, is a medium of exchange. But what makes something money is that it is a general medium of exchange. So it's not just a medium of exchange that one individual or a few people use. It's something that is generalized so that people are using it widely. And for me, that's a subjective criteria. It's not just for me. It's just what Rothbard himself says. He says the definition of medium of exchange is clear-cut. But the definition of money is vague and subjective necessarily because what do you count as a general medium of exchange versus what does somebody else count as a general medium of exchange? So because of that, I think at current measure, you know, if you looked at the base money, Bitcoin is something like the eighth largest base money in the world. Or if you looked at broad money supply, Bitcoin is around number 15 or 16. So it's already among the top 20 monies in the world, the top 20 currencies in the world in terms of size, which I think is just not nothing. It's something that makes it a money on its own, not a money substitute. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. I guess it comes down to the definition of money. Um, in my mind, I'm sticking with Aristotle's definition, but keep in mind that when Aristotle defined money in those three functions, he was using silver coin as a form of, of money. And that final payment, you know, taking the purchasing power embedded in the coin and giving it to someone else and receiving that purchasing power, the exchange is extinguished at that particular moment and it's not dependent on anything else. I can walk around with gold and silver coins in my pocket I can't walk around with a Bitcoin in my pocket. And to me, that's an important factor in defining what is money and what isn't money, because I want money that's not dependent on anything else. And in order to reach that objective, it has to be a tangible asset. This is in no way diminishing Bitcoin. I am a Bitcoin advocate and have been for a long time. I'm just you know, calling Bitcoin as a money substitute as opposed to money itself. With regard to the Austrian definition of money, remember, 
these guys who wrote the, the great minds, you know, Mises, who was the 20th century's greatest economist, Rothbard, uh, the internet didn't exist when these guys were writing. They couldn't conceive of virtual currency. But keep in mind that currency evolves throughout history. Uh, and it's evolved again, again, from bank liabilities to this virtual element. That, in my mind, is an important technological advancement. Now, I use the term virtual because it's different. I, when we use the term digital, a lot of people get confused by that. But, you know, that's just a means of conveying something. You can have digital fiat currencies. You can have digital gold. The, by the way, I should probably address that point because, you know, how does digital gold serve as, as, as money? Well, the gold stays in the vault and the payer clicks a weight of gold from his holding, which is not a bank liability or anything that it's gold sitting in the vault under custodial arrangements. He clicks it from his holding to the holding of the payee. And so you're basically moving gold digitally instantaneously. And to address your point about moving things around um, in global commerce, you can do it 24 seven uh, through a mobile phone. And that's what we used to do in gold money. But we, you know, governments are very, very adamant about defending their position uh, and making life difficult for competitors. So we very quickly shifted away from using gold as a means of payment in commerce and using gold as a means of savings uh, to protect your purchasing power because it doesn't make sense to save fiat currency anymore because uh, of the debasement rates at which fiat currencies are losing purchasing power. Yeah, so I think, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought up gold money because this comes back to it. In a sense, yes, there is that element of it's something that you carry in your pocket, but you can also carry your Bitcoin private keys in your pocket. And the physical aspect of Bitcoin can be made to happen. You can generate private keys offline, completely separate from the internet, and then hold them in a physical form in a very secure way that is very similar to gold. And in effect, possession of these keys, these private keys, is very similar to possessing a bar of gold. So... Um, I think I, I understand that. In fact, a friend of mine actually printed some coins up uh, with private keys, <laughs> with keys on them, um, you know, for use just to prove the point that you can make it tangible. But, you know, there is no long history of people using that like there is with gold or silver. You know, if I used a coin like that at a, at a shop with a Bitcoin key on it, you know, nobody would accept it. But if I use a gold coin or a silver coin, you know, people would probably accept it. You know, this is something I learned long ago when I was in Thailand, uh, one of my first international assignments uh, when I was working for a big bank. You know, I could go up country and I could use a, a silver coin and, and purchase food, even though that was not necessarily the currency of the country or the currency wasn't in circulation. You know, there's a, a market out there for, for gold and silver, more so in maybe underdeveloped countries than there is at developed countries at the moment, but that's a weakness of developed countries that people have come to lack the understanding as to what gold or silver really represent. And I see silver as a gold substitute rather than, you know, money in its, in its own right, although it can serve as the functions of money, but gold is really the key money. And that gets back to, you know, my, my theory of natural money and how gold became that role and why it preserves purchasing power over long periods of time. Yeah, I mean, the, ultimately, when you're thinking about something being used as money, 
I think we could get stuck too much in the physical conception of trade, which happened before the internet and before communication, in which you traded with people in person. And in that world, the physical aspect and the finality of uh, gold and silver is something worthwhile. But now that the vast majority of your trading or all of the things that you consume, they come from all over the world. The whole world economy is very interconnected, requiring payments to travel around the world at a very high speed. In that kind of world, Bitcoin ends up performing the functions of money that you identify in gold. The reason that made the reasons that made gold superior to silver and copper and nickel, Bitcoin is effectively doing the same thing. It's just doing them better than gold because it is faster to move around. I mean, ultimately, what made gold better than the others? One part of it is that because it becomes more and more valuable, it becomes more and more economical to move around. So you can move more. Uh, way more value per unit of weight in gold than anything else. And that helps us transportability. And Bitcoin is essentially a massive improvement in that because you could send a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin um, across the world in, I mean, you could take a few hours if you wanted to really secure it with several confirmations. But ultimately, it's a lot faster and cheaper than it is to move that kind of quantity with physical gold. So I understand, but I mean, you can move gold ownership without necessarily moving it physically. If you have a vault in Switzerland. Yeah, but that's, that's exactly the problem. I mean, this is why gold isn't money anymore, because you need to trust the people that are holding the custody of this and you need to trust the governments not to take it over. And so coming into the example of gold money that you mentioned, and the reason these kind of ideas never really took off like Bitcoin has with the same scale as Bitcoin is that ultimately these things can be shut down and they're reported to the government. So you have to pay capital gains taxes every time you go in and out of that currency. And it's not possible to operate it outside of the central banks and the government's fiat circus, essentially. You need to be using their banks. You need to be using all of their KYC stuff. Well, Bitcoin functions for international settlement and clearance without having to resort to any of that. You don't have to trust any of those things. And that's why, ultimately, people who say, well, gold works even if the internet is down. In today's world, Bitcoin works better if the internet is down than gold does. Because as you said, gold needs to be put in a vault and then you're going to be trading certain weights and moving them around. Well, you need databases for that and you need people to manage that those databases and you need to have a process of moving the physical gold in and out And that's going to be expensive, and that's going to be reliant on modern infrastructure and modern information technology, and it's going to be reliant on the internet. And so your internet is going to block your your gold money is going to break down. I think long before Bitcoin breaks down as a form of money, if 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 there is a problem with the internet, because Bitcoin ultimately. Anybody who shows up can just um, move their coins and upgrade the ledger and add another block. And even in the case of a massive shutdown in um, the internet that is coordinated all across the world, ultimately, as long as any computers can go back and find the, uh, the hashing and start solving, the chain will live on. You may be able to kill it for a few weeks or a few months. But then when it goes back online, I mean, and I don't think it could reach months, but 
even kind of the worst case scenario, you still have the record of Bitcoins still there, existing over tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of computers all over the world. And so therefore, it is more robust and more resilient as a way of performing modern functions of money than gold, because modern money requires being fast to move around. And to do that with gold, you need physical institutions and physical technology. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, and I, I don't disagree with any of that. But you know, you're taking much more of a long-term view, whereas I'm taking much more of a short-term view with regard to the creation of Bitcoin. Uh, in other words, people want to protect private property. They want to protect their wealth. And they come up with creative ways to do that. Um, some of those ways are just minor you know, events, people storing some gold or silver coins in, in their basement or something like that. But you know what Satoshi's done is he's created a whole new type of currency in response to increasingly fascist governments around the world. Now, in a world with no rule of law or where governments believe people are the property of the government, which is not the way America was founded and is, you know, against the principles of the age of enlightenment and representative democracy. But, you know, a lot of those principles are being eroded in recent environment. So in that sense, it's not surprising, you know, that someone came up with the idea of Bitcoin. And uh, it's very consistent with, you know, how money and currency have developed throughout history. You've, you always want to have a technologically advanced currency in order to make commerce much easier, much safer and increasingly less expensive, which is a good thing because the more the currency is easy to use and not costly, et cetera, uh, the better it is for commerce because people will then enter into more opportunities to buy and sell, not just locally, but globally. And by doing that, commerce increases and everyone increases their standard of living. So if we go into a world with changes in just like the 19th century changed the something completely different from in the 20th century. Uh, if in the future we go back to a very strong rule of law uh, and an ethical and moral relationship between governments of, of the world, I, I think the role of Bitcoin will decline and the role of gold will increase. Of course, this is all speculation because nobody can predict the future. But I am looking at the fact that, you know, gold has been around for 5,000 years, been through world wars, been through famines, catastrophes of one sort or another. And it always comes up out of the other side of the valley doing the same thing it did, you know, throughout, throughout history. And so I expect Bitcoin to be within the long-term scope of things, a stepping stone to something better. And that stepping stone will lead to gold and how that gold will circulate at some point in time in the future. I have no idea, but I strongly believe that gold will play a role at, at the center of global commerce, which is its rightful and traditional role. And by abandoning it, led to the creation of Bitcoin. It also led to all of the problems that we're seeing around the world today in terms of environmental degradation and things of that nature. It's interesting in my mind that when Satoshi invented Bitcoin, he used gold as a model. Uh, I think that says a lot in terms of gold's inherent strengths. It's likely staying power as we go into the future, regardless how technology develops. Bitcoin in its present form is almost like some of those early rudimentary type coins. It's going to get better in the future. It's inevitable. Speeds of transactions will improve. Uh, ease of convenience will, will improve. We're not there yet. It's still early days. 
Um, but that's part of the reason why I think Bitcoin is eventually going to go over $100,000 a coin. Just a matter of time. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, I obviously disagree with a lot of uh, what you said here. I still think it's, I mean, I, I agree, to be clear, in the fiat standard, at the end of the fiat standard, I, I, and in the Bitcoin standard, I, I also say that the best way to kill Bitcoin would be to go on a gold standard. I think that would be the most effective way of attacking a Bitcoin because all of the other attacks that people think of as ways of going after Bitcoin are essentially playing to Bitcoin's advantage because they're basically saying that these things should, uh, you should get away from Bitcoin, you should not use your money in Bitcoin. And that's just highlighting to people the case for Bitcoin, which is that the government controls your money. Whereas if we go back to a gold standard, which they can't print, which they find much harder to censor, and which they can't use to finance themselves, well, the incentive to find something like Bitcoin reduces and drops enormously. Having said that, we are nowhere near <laughs> going to live in a world in which we have any kind of semblance of fiscal responsibility, I think. So for me, that suggests that Bitcoin is not going away effectively because governments are going to continue to provide excellent marketing for Bitcoin's use case. And I think ultimately, though, because of the world becoming more and more digitally interconnected because of so much more of the world economy being informational now and so much more of the world's economic production taking place in a way that transcends government borders, which moves value across international borders in a way with which fiat money and gold can't keep up. A digital form of money is good on its own, even in the absence of government coercion. In other words, there's going to still be value, even if we move on to a perfect gold standard and we have perfectly responsible governments and you have complete financial freedom and complete financial privacy and government doesn't interfere in any of that stuff. Even in that kind of world, there is an enormous advantage to being able to resort to a form of money where final settlement happens completely online rather than having to move physical bars of yellow metal across international borders and then have to melt them down because that's the only way that you can verify that the gold bar is not adulterated is to melt it down, which is an expensive and time-consuming process. And essentially, Bitcoin does the same thing using software. And so it's a much cheaper, much faster, much more efficient way of doing it. And that's why, in my opinion, I think it's effectively demonetizing gold. And I think I would go even further and say, uh, gold, silver has been getting demonetized continuously since 1870, since Germany switched from a silver standard to a gold standard. And that was really, I think, the, the turning point, because before that, most of the world's major economies were on a gold standard. Germany and a few others were on silver, but Germany was the biggest of the silver countries. And when it switched to gold, silver has been in decline ever since. So at that point, it was 14 ounces of silver for one ounce of gold, and today it's closer to 100 or something like that. Yeah, 16. The U.S. was on a silver standard until 1900 when they switched to a gold standard. And this actually gets back to the history of, of the dollar and how it came about, which we could talk about if, if you would like, um, because it does relate to you know what's going on in the States today in terms of um, moving further and further away from the requirements of the American Constitution. And essentially, we have a unconstitutional monetary system operating in the United States today. But yeah, you know, just uh, maybe to wrap up on this uh, Bitcoin um, discussion before we move on, 
you know, I, I don't disagree with basically anything you're saying. And I, I think we're, we, we agree with a lot more than we, than we, where we have disagreements. I think the disagreements relate to how things are going to evolve in the future, uh, rather than, you know, where we are today. Um, but we don't know how things are going to evolve. Uh, but that's why I say we should be looking at Bitcoin and gold as being on the same side as in the, in the fight against increasingly government regimentation and control and the erosion of personal freedom and private property um, and doing what you want with your, with your property. We're fighting the same enemy uh, and how which one emerges as the major player in the future, I don't know. But what you have to do is own both just in case because we don't know which one's going to come out on top. Uh, maybe they both will survive, but you never know. You want to own both in order to have that diversification in your portfolio to protect your purchasing power. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, in, in that sense, there is a case to be made in that case. But I still think uh, there was, a, would you say the same about copper? Would you buy copper? I don't own any copper. Uh, but, you know, basically anything useful that you see as useful and tangible is what you should be owning at the moment. There's too much purchasing power, power floating out there that's dependent upon counterparty risk. And in a financial collapse, people move that purchasing power into tangible things or near tangibles, which are basically stocks of companies that own tangibles and have very little fiat currency themselves. It's, it's a question of protecting, protecting your wealth. And there are two different things you have to protect. You have to protect the assets that are useful in their own right, like your, your, your home, uh, um, which provides shelter. There are other assets which provide an investment income as opposed to your liquidity. So when you're looking at a portfolio, you have investments and you have liquidity, uh, gold, Bitcoin. And if you want some fiat currencies as well for day to day spending, they go in the liquidity part of your portfolio. You know, you, you have to look at the counterparty risks associated with everything that you own, because everything today is much more unstable than it has been in the past. And that ultimately, that's basically because of what governments have done to currency. I very much like Murray Rothbard's book, What Has Government Done to Our Money? Uh, they basically turned everything upside down and made a mess of it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a great book. It's one of the first books that I read for Rothbard. I highly recommend it. It's a very brief book. But it's very powerful at getting into the heart of the problem with government control of money. Yeah, and bank liabilities circulating as currency, because fundamentally that's the issue. If you can create purchasing power out of thin air, which is what governments do, what banks do for governments, you're in a very powerful position because that purchasing power, you know, gives you, gives you real power in terms of how you can use it and spend it. In addition, you have what's called the Cantillon effect. The per people who receive that purchasing power first maximize the purchasing power of it before the market realizes that the currency has been debased and the purchasing power is eroded you know, down the line because of, of a debasement or inflation or what we call inflation. Yeah. Let's switch to talking more about your book and your theory of natural money, as you call it. Can you give us a summary of that? And what is it that makes, uh, makes gold natural money in your mind? Yeah, it fulfills the four functions required of money. And it goes back to the very basic element of, you know, of society. When we're talking about natural money, let me put it within the context of what, I, what people call the social contract. 
you know, we live within an environment where we have a relationship with authorities. Um, it's changed and evolved over time. Typically, the social contract starts out in a way that's mutually beneficial. So, for example, feudalism, when it began, was mutually beneficial. Uh, the serf exchanges labor for the protection that the lord of the manor would have because he could go live in, go in a castle during a time of uh, war or anything like that. But in exchange, the lord of the manor got the labor of, of the serf. Over time, that social contract evolved and it became abusive. And the serfs no longer wanted to maintain that feudalistic period. And we evolved then into divine right of kings. The divine right of kings eventually led to the age of enlightenment and representative democracy. So, democracy. Uh, so I'm talking about, you know, the 18th century, um, writers like, uh, well, Thomas Jefferson, the framers of the American Constitution, uh, John Locke, a lot of Scottish philosophers at the time, a lot of the centered in, in the UK. That age of enlightenment was bringing something new to the scene. The divine right of kings was finished in the UK specifically with the Glorious Revolution in 1688 and the role of representative democracy through parliament continued to grow. But we're reaching a stage now that people are no longer in control of their government. And I think the social contract is again evolving and I have no idea what it's going to evolve to. Hopefully it will go back to the standards that were established under the age of enlightenment. But th the reason why government individuals no longer have control of the government is that talking specifically about the uh, American government, but it applies to other places as well. Washington DC is captured. It's captured by vested interests. Um, these are billionaires, uh, their corporations and everyone who spends millions and millions, uh, billions and billions of dollars, you know, getting uh, regulations and things favorable to themselves. And the people that suffer are the people that have to fulfill those regulations or have their standard of living uh, diminished by things like inflation. You know, when the American Constitution was formed after the War of Independence, there were three basic principles in it. One was a common defense. One was the creation of a common market, much like the European common market after the Second World War, and a common currency uh, that would circulate within that, within that market. So they said that the federal government, which is separate and distinct from the sovereign state governments, which received their sovereignty from the King of Britain after the War of Independence, the federal government had 17 specific powers um, to fulfill these three objectives. And one of those powers was the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof. Now, it didn't have the power to print money. And further, the states were specifically prohibited from emitting what was what the, um, the framers called bills of credit. Often when you say bills of credit, people's eyes gloss over until you say that the dollar bill in your pocket is a dollar bill of credit. Then they realize that paper currency is a dollar bill of credit. But it, we now have a system that is no longer whatsoever closely tied or tied at all to the constitutional monetary system. And the terms coin money and regulate the value thereof, what that meant was that regulate the value of the coins, which meant that there would always be adjusting the gold-silver ratio to make sure there was sufficient coinage, sufficient metal on hand to meet the coinage demand. In, initially, it was 16.7 coins, uh, ounces of silver to one ounce of gold. Then in 1837, they adjusted it to the more famous 16 to one, which we were referring to before. And that remained until 1900 when the government decided to switch 
from a uh, silver standard to a gold standard. And that existed until 1934, uh, 1933, when Roosevelt confiscated the gold, took the gold out of the hands of the people, just like the fascists in Europe took the gold out of the hands of the people. Because if you have the ability to create purchasing power without any discipline, you know, like the discipline that was exposed, uh, imposed by the gold standard, you have a lot of power. And it's not surprising that governments have become increasingly powerful, but they've reached a stage now where they're borrowing so much, printing so much currency, spending so much of that newly uh, created, what I call in the book, phantom purchasing power, as opposed to earned purchasing power, where you work and generate something useful in order to create something that provide purchasing power for you to fulfill your needs and wants. The system as it exists today has become so abusive, just like feudalism ended. The system of bank liabilities circulating as currency is coming to an end. Now, whether it's going to be digital gold currency that replaces it or Bitcoin that replaces it or something that we can't even conceive of, I don't know. When it's going to happen, I don't know. But the system has become abusive and it is going to change. Just one other thing that I like to use as an example to sort of illustrate the point. If you follow the the, the concepts of uh, individual liberty as expressed so clearly by the writers of the Age of Enlightenment, and if you visualize it as a waterfall, at the top of the waterfall is the individual, and he has certain inalienable rights, uh, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, of which private property is one of those pursuits of happiness. Privacy is another pursuit of happiness. All of those things are within the pursuit of happiness. But you're at the top of the waterfall with these inalienable rights. In the United States, what happened was individuals then delegated to the states a and a number of powers, and then the states delegated 17 specific powers to the federal government to create those three objectives that they wanted to accomplish. What's happened now is that waterfall has been turned upside down. Uh, the individual's at the bottom of the waterfall and the federal government is at the top. That's not the way it's supposed to work. That's why the social contract been eroding at its, its very core, its very center. And you're seeing that today in terms of the political divide, the you know, what's called the cultural wars. When I grew up in the 19, when, when I was growing up in the 1950s, the way it used to work was that you could think your neighbor was crazy and your neighbor could think you were crazy, but you respected everybody else's position because you had a common rule of law. Everybody knew that their property was safe and sacrosanct. That's all changed. It started changing with political correctness and it's become even worse now with some of these woke ideas that are going around the world. I mean, we've lost common sense pretty much uh, so many places that it's sort of hard to, to, to name all of them. But essentially what I'm basically saying is, is that we've, we're reaching a stage and we're seeing it in the monetary system because money is the core element that enables us to interact harmoniously with one another and improve our situation, what Adam Smith called the invisible hand. We enter into transactions in order to be better off. And as long as there's no fraud or deception in that transaction, everybody benefits from a transaction. You don't enter into a transaction unless you think you're going to be better off. Uh, and that's the, the essence of society. And in order for that to happen, you need what's often called sound money, but I just say money. Saying sound money is sort of like saying wet water in terms of the way I see it. Money is money uh, and water is water. Uh, you don't need the adjective to describe it once you truly understand what money is. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm going to go back and still think, in a, still make the case that I think 
ultimately there is a case to be made that gold is being demonetized. So er- earlier I asked you if you think that copper, there's a point in buying copper, but I mean, perhaps you can speculate on uh, copper as a product in a market. So you buy and you sell copper, but ultimately it's not something that unless you are in the business of copper or it's something that where you have warehouses where you can take custody of large amounts of copper and then sell them, then really you're just joining one other uh, table on the giant fiat casino where things are being gambled upon. Yeah. But uh, copper is just, it's it's so base as a metal that it's so cheap that it's, what is it, I think $30 a ton or something like that, that you, it's it, it makes no sense for an individual to just use it as a form of money. I think that's really the key thing. And there was a time when copper was money. There was a time in which gold coins and silver coins and copper coins circulated together. But now we don't do that anymore because copper has lost so much value that it doesn't make sense for anybody to use it as money. And I think we're seeing something similar happen with silver because realistically, I mean, silver's price has been stable in this 20 to $25 range for God knows how long now, more than a decade, I think. And in this period, the dollar has gone down significantly. So when you compare the price of the dollar or the value of the dollar next to real estate, next to all kinds of uh, other assets, you see the dollars going down and you see that there's an enormous amount of inflation taking place in today's world economy. So gold and silver are not even protecting you. So silver more uh, obviously, but I think gold is also becoming similarly useless in fighting inflation and so therefore it's you know i i'd like to just be nice and say yeah we're all on the same team together but there's a real opportunity cost every dollar you hold in gold is a dollar that you're not holding in bitcoin and bitcoin is witnessing serious appreciation whereas gold is between has been between 1600 and 2000 for the past what 12 14 15 16 years now something like that and that means it's losing value. And I think that on its means that it's losing its monetary value. Let me just say, against the British pound, for example, where I live, uh, since 1971, gold is compounding a CAGR, a compound annual growth rate of 9%. Since 2000, it's got a CAGR of 9.5%. So you're not losing by gold. But let me just get to the point that you're saying about gold being demonetized. I sent you a chart of crude oil prices you know, going back to 1950. An ounce of gold today purchases the same amount of crude oil today, actually purchases a little bit more uh, than it did in uh, 1950. Uh, it's doing what money's supposed to do. It's preserving purchasing power over long periods of time. But it isn't. Gold is not, it, gold is not an investment. Uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's just a sterile asset. It, it doesn't create wealth. It only creates wealth if you invest it by spending it, giving it to someone else who takes that gold and term develops a, a business or creates a product or something of that nature. But it's not an investment. It's money. And once you understand that it's money, you then can look at what makes it money. And this is where we get into, you know, the theory of natural money. You know, why does gold preserve purchasing power in that way over 70 years? Why does a Colt 45 during the Wild West cost the same weight of gold as it does today? And that's because it's dis- it's only mined when it's profitable to mine. And it's dispersed in the Earth's crust in such a way that it's becoming harder and harder to discover, 
mind uh, explore and, and eventually mind bring out to the surface. But despite that, because of the advances of technology, we're able to mine areas today that old timers would walk across because it was unprofitable to mine years ago. And so the question then becomes is, why does gold do this? Is it spontaneous, just haphazard by chance? Or is it the purposeful, intelligent design of the creator? And, you know, are we, by using things other than gold as a form of money, are we getting to some of the points that you were talking about in the fiat standard about environmental degradation, living beyond the Earth's capacity to regenerate, uh, the depletion of fishing stocks by building boats that, uh, fishing boats that are being built with cheap capital that wouldn't be built if we were on not using fiat currency, which diminished the true cost of capital, or we would be building houses, 1960s houses that are being ripped down today that because they couldn't withstand the West uh, test of time. Whereas at a period of time when you had capital that was normally priced, 15th, 16th century, you still have houses here in the UK that were built five, six, 700 years ago and perfectly good today as they were five, six, 700 years ago, just been updated with modern conveniences. So there's something to gold that brings it into the sphere of, you know, natural money. Uh, it's, it's unique. It's an asset class in and of itself. And that asset class is money, you know, natural money. It's been that way for 5,000 years. And when this bubble finally pops, uh, and the reliance on fiat currency ends, which probably won't be too long in the future, even though it's much longer than I ever anticipated that it would or, or could, we'll go back to gold and probably in some role with Bitcoin too. But I still see Bitcoin as a stepping stone to something better beyond Bitcoin itself. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we're gonna agree to disagree on. on it's fine. I mean, it's a big it's a big world, and you know, at the end of the day, we'll see you know down the road how it all plays out. But my point is, is that you should own both gold and Bitcoin because you never know how things are going to play out in the future. There could be a technological development tomorrow that changes the nature of Bitcoin itself. Or, you know, there could be some government imposition on Bitcoin farming. I don't like to use the term mining because that really does a disservice to true mining. If you've ever been down, for example, in a South African gold mine, you know, three kilometers below the surface of the earth, you and you'll understand why I, I object to the term mining. It's not mining. And interestingly, Satoshi never used the term mining in his white paper either. If you want to describe it, I think it's probably best described as electrifying. Some use the term farming, but I think electrifying better captures what's actually happening. Yeah, I guess. Um, well, my question then is, you wrote the coming crash, uh, the coming collapse of the dollar in 2004. It's been 20 years and the dollar is still around. I mean, obviously, it's a lot uh, less purchasing power per dollar today than it was in 2004. But I wouldn't call it really a collapse. So 20 years later, don't you think that maybe it's time to revisit that hypothesis and some of the foundations on which you arrived at that conclusion? Yeah. Do you think the dollar's got legs? Uh, well, it's it had more legs than I thought possible, but uh, it's, it's on a path. But let me just first refer to the book. There were two key points in that book uh, back in 2004. One was that there was a real estate bubble. And two, that you have to buy gold to protect your purchasing power. In that decade, the following that book, and those, those are probably two of the best decisions one could have made, you know, avoid real estate and, 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 and own gold. Because gold back then was $300 an, an ounce. Uh, and it eventually 
moved up a lot from there. And we all know what happened in 2008 in terms of the real estate bubble. But the dollar has been eroding. It hasn't collapsed uh, for a hundred years. You know, back in 1913, when the Federal Reserve was created, $20.67 could exchange for an ounce of gold. And we know what it is today. It's been a constant erosion. But if you look at history, it took over a hundred years or so for the Roman coins to eventually collapse. You know, they just eroded for a hundred years. And then within a period of uh, a decade or so, they just, you know, totally collapsed because they become so debased, so inflated, uh, the basic principles under which the Roman Empire had formed and, and succeeded as within the social contract that was prevalent at that time, it, it all collapsed. And I think the dollar is headed for a collapse. It's on a road. Uh, the road is not called the American way. The road is called dollar collapse because we've abandoned the principles of the Constitution. And the irony is that one of the reasons why the framers of the American Constitution put those monetary provisions in there is to uh, avoid what happened with the continental, which was the first currency of the country. It collapsed in hyperinflation in 1781 because of too much currency being printed during the War of, of Independence. So they wanted to form a more perfect union with with a uh, with monetary provisions that would prevent overissuance of that currency, overissuance of those bank liabilities circulating as currency. And it worked reasonably well for, you know, 170 years or whatever it was until, you know, the 1930s, um, particularly, but then the 1970s when we completely abandoned uh, any pretense of being linked to gold, except that central banks still own gold on their balance sheet. Uh, and that, in my mind, is an important factor that could ultimately lead to the reestablishment of gold in some form. Um, backing uh, national currencies, but it would have to be done at a price well in excess of like $10,000 an ounce uh, in order to have any credibility, assuming all the gold is there. And there have been questions raised as to whether or not all of that gold is still in Fort Knox or whether some of it has been dissipated over the years. Yeah, I think here the difference uh, in the case for gold and Bitcoin also becomes a little bit apparent in that with gold, there seems to be this requirement that governments are going to have to uh, revalue gold and back their currencies by gold in order to protect their currencies from collapsing because that's their only option left because they continue to devalue their currencies. In other words, there's going to need to be license from government. Whereas with the case of Bitcoin, we don't need that. Or even in the case of gold, even, even if governments don't need to go on a gold standard, ultimately what they need still need to do is allow for gold-based payments and gold-based banking, which I don't see them allowing because the whole way that they have their fiat Ponzi operate is that they prevent gold. If they, if they could let gold operate as money, it would have already displaced fiat. So for that, I think that's really the difference why I find that there is a lot more focus on this idea that there's going to be a collapse, that there's going to be a fall in the value of the dollar, and that gold is going to be necessary. Whereas in Bitcoin, there is a more of a positive narrative around it, or a more of a positive, I shouldn't say narrative as much as it is reality, in that, look, this is just faster, harder money. And so it's naturally going to continue to improve over time in that it's going to gain more liquidity and it's going to increase in value, and the people who are going to use it are going to profit at the expense 
not necessarily at the expense of everybody else, but at least at the expense of the governments that are able to benefit from inflation because they won't be robbed by inflation anymore. So this really, this is why, again, to go back to your issue of natural money, if you think of the world today in terms of the digital world in which we live, I think this ends up being more important than all of the physical properties. In fact, the lack of the physical property ends up allowing Bitcoin to play the role of money in a way that's more efficient than gold. But as you said, it's a big world out there, so of course it's okay if we disagree. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think, again, we agree more than we disagree, but just a couple of points that what government should do is get out of the money business altogether and let private uh, enterprises compete with one another in order to deliver the best product to the market and let the market then choose which one they want. And if the market chooses one over the other, the people who back the, the winner benefit, just like that's the way a capitalist system is supposed to work. That's what, you know, government should allow, you know, free capitalism competition. We're not there, of course, and whether we'll ever get there, you know, one can only hope that we'll eventually go back to some kind of sane system. Uh, but uh, only you know time will tell uh, whether we actually move move that way or not. But we we'll sh- we shall see. Um, it's going to be very very intriguing, you know, over the next several years. Oh, when, one other point about just to make clear that you know gold it it's how you define money. Gold has not been demonetized in my view because it does the same thing today it did in 1950. It does the same thing today it did in uh, 1900 in terms of purchasing power, which is you know, one of the key elements of what money is all about. Even though it doesn't circulate as currency that much, it does circulate a lot in the sense that people are moving in and out of fiat currency every day, every minute of the day. And that in its sense is a result of government imposition uh, that you need to deal with government approved currency when you're living with it within a country. Uh, and that's one of the beauties of Bitcoin. Uh, it's transnational. And that's the way gold should be. But, you know, gold, because it is tangible, it has a history of being, you know, confiscated. Its strength is also its weakness. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been extremely helpful. Uh, could you let us know more about where people can find you online and what you're up to recently? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at FGMR, um, stands for Free Gold Money Report. And I also have a website. The URL is fgmr.com, where occasionally I will write. And then, of course, I have my latest book, which is Money and Liberty, which you referred to earlier. I'm 77 this year, so I'm not as active as I used to be. I don't travel to conferences anymore. Uh, but I still do interviews um, and write occasionally. Still very much a, an advocate for freedom and individual liberty and whatever I can do to help move the people in that direction to better understand the system in which we live today uh, and to give them the idea that there's something much better out there. I'm always happy to be interviewed to discuss those concepts as well beyond just gold, which is, I think, why we got into concepts beyond um, Bitcoin, beyond gold today. It is something that I think is very important because I'm very concerned about where we are today in the world and what my children and my grandchildren are going to live like in, in the world uh, to come. Indeed. Thank you so much for joining us again. And I uh, hope we'll see you soon again. Cheers. Thanks, Safe. Anytime. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye.